Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Saturday, May the 27th, 2023. And I guess a few months ago, I uh, was contacted by Vance and introduced to a website called My Latin Life. And uh, I ended up doing a podcast with him on I don't know how interesting it was, but things having to do with the taxation, U.S. taxation of Americans abroad, etc. But during the podcast, I realized that he had a ton of fascinating things going on with my Latin life. So it is my great pleasure and honor today to introduce to you Vance personally and my Latin life generally. So Vance, how are you today? Doing well, John. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, this is this is really interesting, okay? Because by Latin life, you're um, well. I think obviously targeting South America, Mexico, those sort of things as possible places to live. Is that right? Yep. We cover all of Latin America, from Mexico all the way down to the tip of Argentina. So every country in Latin America, and then we also dabble a little bit in talking about Portugal, Spain, and uh, the Mediterranean. But Latin America is uh, is awesome because I think what I've found is that a lot of people are open to more than one country in Latin America as well. And you'll find that people often have roots or uh, spend time in various countries in the region. So it really makes sense to talk about the region as a whole. But... Uh... In terms of what you're doing, uh, I mean, I could sanitize it by suggesting you're sort of a relocation specialist, but it sounds like what you're doing is introducing people to opportunities for living that get them out of these uh, bureaucratic, high-tax, first-world democracies. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. It's interesting because a lot of the companies in the space uh, that you know well, they, they're they often focused on taking people from tier B and C countries and bringing them to Canada or the US or Europe, you know, through CBI or golden visas and so forth. And we're actually, I think, one of the few companies doing the opposite, where we're introducing the idea to Canadians, Americans and Europeans that life might be better in Latin America. Um, and from a from a weather perspective, from a taxation perspective, from a friendliness and feeling alive perspective, lower cost of living, better food, uh, nightlife, uh, really a little bit of everything. So Latin America is a great region. It's it's a great place to explore. And, and we kind of keep it fresh by dabbling in, in a little bit of everything that this region has to offer. Well, that, this is really interesting. I think I've never heard it put that way, but I think you're absolutely right. That uh, most of the, or at least the most, at least the visible companies in this, what do we call it, this investment migration industry, uh, you know, really are focused on uh, on the United States and the whole EV five program, or you know, some of these European programs, Spain, Portugal, etc., and Canada. Although, you know, I've never understood why there seems to be less focus on Canada uh, among the first world democracies, but there is, but. I think there's a whole group of people who, you know, really would be a lot happier outside of North America. And that's a great group to uh, sort of introduce this to. Now, um, who are the people who you find are most likely to uh, contact you, say, uh, Vance, uh, time's come to leave Canada. Uh, how can you help me? What, what demographic is that anyway? It's a good question. I think our audience naturally skews a bit younger uh, just because we're uh, really big on Twitter and Twitter, I think, skews to a little bit younger of a demographic. So we're talking about people from maybe their mid 20s to mid 30s uh, would be the majority of the demographic. These are people who are very they're, they're actually a very intelligent audience and you know, they're already doing a lot of research themselves. A lot of them are quite educated. Maybe they watch a little bit of Nomad Capitalist on YouTube. So they're a little bit familiar with the idea of residencies, passports, lowering your taxes, things like that. And they come into it knowing a little bit about that. 
And then we kind of give them the education in terms of what's going on in Latin America. Now, that being said, uh, I think things make sense as well to people who are uh, approaching retirement age and, and older groups of people as well, because retirees, they can lower their cost of living by going to Latin America. They can live on their pension and live much more comfortably. They can have lower health care costs. There's actually very good health care in a lot of places in Latin America, and it's much cheaper in terms of those health insurance premiums or even paying out of pocket. So it, it works really well for young people, and it can also work really well for uh, slightly older people. Well, there's a whole there's a whole group of people in North America who can't possibly afford to retire in North America. I mean, I think that's just a simple, indisputable fact. Yeah. You know, I would have to think that that's a huge, but I think quite quite a different market. Uh, if for no other reason that, you know, the younger people have the advantage of not having a bunch of assets usually, right? And therefore not going to be subject to Canadian departure taxes and that. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's fair to say. But the, uh, the you know, the older demographic, of course, would. What about in between? You know, so you say, you know, 25 to 35, and all of a sudden we have this big jump up to 60. You get families considering this? I think a little bit. I, I want to have more uh, families on the podcast because I think that's an interesting piece because, you know, a lot of people in their, let's say, early 30s, they're starting to have babies and, and they're really trying to decide where it's like, do I raise my kids in Canada or do I raise them in Latin America? And what are the pros and cons there? And those are pretty big uh, decisions to make. And I have a lot of friends who are kind of in that bucket right now. Um, so I, I would say that the the, the early family or, or middle-aged family, it's a little bit less. It's hard because it's hard to take a kid that's, you know, 10, 12, 15 years old out of school and transplant them to you know costa rica or whatever it is so i think i see a little bit less of that but i so i think it's either the younger people or the older people that have uh the kids already out of the house more likely yeah and of course i think we've talked about this before but uh you know there are of course opportunities to have your children born outside canada and say mexico or somewhere and get mexican citizenship right correct every country in latin america except Colombia has birthright citizenship. Uh, so people are familiar with this where, you know, you have a, if your baby is born in the US, they become American, et cetera. And what's interesting about Latin America is there's even opportunities for not just the child, but for the parents as well. So with Mexico, if your child is born in Mexico, the parents can get permanent residency in Mexico pretty much automatically. Uh, so that's, that's a, a cool additional feature that, I don't think necessarily exists in Canada or the USA. I can tell you, it definitely does not exist in Canada and the United States. Definitely not. And, you know, that strikes me as, from a practical point of view, a very, very good opportunity. You know, not a ton of cost involved in that, but I mean, you can give your child you know, even if they come back to Toronto or something, the gift of dual citizenship, right, from birth, yes? Correct. I think there's a couple pros there that we could outline quickly. For one, the cost of the birth is going to be a lot less. Uh, for Americans, you know, having a baby might cost like $30,000 or something, whereas it might be one-tenth of that in Latin America. It might be less than $3,000 all in for the birth and the private room and all that good stuff, right? So it's going to be cheaper to have the baby in Latin America. And then, yes, I mean, uh, the way the, the citizenship by descent works is you're going to be able to pass your Canadian or American citizenship onto your kids anyway, whether or not they're born in Canada, uh, as long as you're, you know, you were born in Canada. Uh, I, I could explain that better, but let's just say, you know, you have your kid in Mexico, they're going to become Canadian too, uh, because the parents are Canadian, right? Because citizenship can be transferred, usually one generation down, 
two generations in more more generous countries like Ireland and Italy. But for Canadians and Americans, typically it's just the parents um, can can transfer that citizenship. So yeah, you're basically just getting an extra passport, and there's no downside because you're not giving up Canadian citizenship. That kid is still going to be Canadian or American. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's just I think that's practically a no brainer. I really do. But you know, I think we we talked about this before. In my experience, it's hard to get people to do the simple and obvious. You know, they're always willing to do something that's complicated and expensive, okay? But, you know, the, the opportunities that are right there are sometimes very, very difficult to, you know, to sell. Uh, do you find that as well? It's definitely an emotional decision, right? Because people want to have their family with them there. Uh, especially, you know, at a, at a time of birth or if there's complications or those early first couple months, right? And so you, you might have to consider your family situation. It's like, do I fly my mom down and can she stay for three months, you know, for these early months of the kid type of thing? So um, obviously it's a, an emotional decision, but if you can make it work, uh, you know, dual citizenship is is quite the gift to give a child. Oh, it, it it absolutely is. And I think it's going to become more and more valuable as time goes on. I mean, you know, the U.S. thing, because of citizenship taxation, of course, is, you know, moving in the direction of getting a lot of people to rethink the long-term viability of their U.S. citizenship. And, uh, you know, you kind of got to have, I mean, maybe not legally, but practically you kind of have to have a second citizenship to be able to contemplate that, right? Yep, yep. So it gives people the option to renounce as well. Well, that's that's uh, that's quite interesting. Um, so that's sort of a market for you know that uh, that mid range group. Now, what about you know you talk about the group you know that's from twenty five to thirty five or forty or something something of this nature. You know, to me that suggests that uh, you know the market here is sort of. Uh, you know, what, what do you call them, the digital nomad or the location-independent group who, you know, can just sort of continue what they're doing to make a living somewhere else. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I think making money online is a crucial piece of this because you do not want to go to Latin America and be dependent on the local economy there. So you're going to want to ensure that you are making your money in the U.S., in Canada, Maybe even in, you know, you have a Dubai company or something, right? But just something outside of, of Latin America and that you're earning like a first world income, uh, as we call it, earn U.S. dollars, spend pesos. Yeah, oh, that's a good way to put it. So first world income and, uh, you know, that that's what gives you sort of, you know, an elevated lifestyle, I suppose, right? Um, yeah, in, in these other countries. Okay, so... Now, you said something interesting a minute ago. You said that you would not want to be dependent on the local economy. Could I ask you to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I mean, salaries are low and doing business can be difficult. And like the best place to make money in the world is still the United States. So uh, to the extent that people can make money in, in Canada or the United States, that's definitely where you're going to want to make your money. Um, I think there's a lot of talk around you know remote job versus online business and what's the best like let's just say you want to get remote you want to travel the world while making money online what's the best way to do it is it a remote job or is it online business i know some people that are kind of anti-remote job um but personally i think it's a great way to get started you get that remote job uh you make a you're, you're going to make enough money to basically immediately put you in the top one percent in Latin America in terms of, uh, you know, income earners. And then you can go ahead and uh, start a business on the side as well. And if that business eventually replaces your full time income, all the power to you. But the thing about, I think, jumping straight into online business is it's tough to make it work. A lot of people have to iterate on a bunch of different business models till they find something that works. Uh, you know, people do, you know, whatever, drop shipping for a bit, and then they try copywriting, and then they try trading Bitcoin, and then they try this and that. And so sometimes it can take a while to figure out what works for you. And that can be stressful if you're living off savings or something. So we recommend people 
start with a remote job and then maybe monkey branch into online business? Well, I, I would think you probably want three or four different uh, different sources of income so that you're not, you know, overly dependent on any one of them. Now, you know, I think we may have talked about this a bit, but I was looking through your podcast and I, I noticed that you had a podcast that did discuss the the whole taxation of the remote worker and, you know, the extent to which that would implicate the company, right? With John Lee, yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, without, I don't want to get into that hugely, but I think we should note that for the remote worker, that could be an additional complication, right? Uh, it's definitely true. There's there's number of ways that that can be mitigated, but I think because yeah, there's so much that could be said about this, but it's it's very interesting how we're going to watch this develop because we're so early into remote work as a phenomenon. It really only started popping up in 2020 for most people. I, I was working remotely prior to 2020, um, but I, I was definitely kind of one of the OG. Like anyone who was doing it prior to 2020 is definitely an OG. So it's becoming much more common space. And uh, I think we're starting to see a couple trends there. One trend I'm seeing is that companies th that allow you to work remote are starting to put limitations on how much time you can spend in a particular country and in what countries you're allowed to work remote. Because they might, I, I for example, seen uh, rules where they say you can work in Ecuador, but you cannot work in Panama. You can work in Mexico, but you cannot work in Nicaragua. Um, if you work in Mexico, you can do up to six months a year. If you do France, you can only do up to 30 days per year. Yeah, I mean, this because, is probably a function of the tax treaties, right? Exactly. It's the tax treaties, and they don't want to run amok of that. Sure. And uh, so I think you're starting to see more of that. I, I think that definitely did not used to exist before. I think, you know, people are starting to get smarter now. But for most companies and, and most situations, it's really just like, don't work in Russia. Don't work in China. Don't work in North Korea. We don't want you to get hacked um and half of them don't even have google or whatever anyway right because they're they have like a limited internet uh in terms of like blocking certain sites right and so that was kind of always my thought process was just like okay i'm not going to work in russia and i should be good um but now we're seeing sort of increasing layers of um input from the companies saying you know what it's not just don't work in our enemy countries it's it's actually like you know, more nuanced than that. Well, they don't want, the companies don't want to be, uh, you know, to, to be implicated as tax residents, right? You know. For sure. Uh, and, you know, and this and this can be a very costly thing to deal with. So, I mean, I suppose that, uh, well. It makes sense. It makes sense. All roads lead to your own business online. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think both work. Um you know, you go to Mexico City these days, you go to Playa del Carmen, you'll see tons of people that work for San Francisco-based startups that are making big money, you know, uh, easily six figures and living life in Mexico. Um, and so you see both. I mean, you see a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, too. I think uh, some places in Latin America have actually a higher concentration of entrepreneurs in the United States, of American entrepreneurs in the United States. You go to Medellin, you go to Playa del Carmen. The concentration of American uh, online business owners there uh, is is enormous. Well, it, it is interesting. I mean, my my impression of of the way this is unfolding is that it's becoming easier, you know, to run small businesses outside the United States and Canada than in them. Yeah, that's partly true. I mean, you don't even have to be American to start an American LLC, as as you probably know, right? Right. Just, you know, you just spin it up for 200 bucks. You get the EIN, which is basically like a tax ID number. You use that to open a bank account. Most people don't realize that. It's funny. Like, all everyone's trying to get into the States. Uh, you know, they're trying to, they're, everyone's trying to get into the States, but you don't even have to go to the States. You can just open an American company open a bank account, you get Stripe, you get PayPal, you can uh, charge customers, you can charge credit cards, you can get credit cards, you're part of the financial system. And uh, a lot of people uh, have, have success with that. And so, 
yeah, it's at the point where we've really sort of, it, it's a brave new world because we've sort of divorced our physical locations from where we make money. Like the whole reason we had cities, the whole reason people went to factory towns in Ohio was because that's where the jobs were, right? Um, but now you're making money online, uh, probably through Dubai or the US or just a couple different financial center spots, but you don't really physically have to be there. And uh, that's going to change everything because now people are going to be much more keen to live in beautiful aesthetic places, places with activities. People are going to want to live in surf towns. People are going to want to live in the mountains if they like skiing. And so they can sort of base where they live on the lifestyle and not because they're there specifically to earn money. Now, from time to time, I have read uh, articles in, you know, just basic newspapers and that, uh, suggesting that the influx of, you know, remote workers from uh, United States, Canada, or European countries is negatively affecting, uh, you know, the locals. For example, Portugal and the housing market. Um uh, I mean, is this type of thing bidding up the price of housing and that to the point that it's affecting, uh, uh, you know, local long-time residents? I mean, is it really any different than Toronto? The the cost of housing in Toronto is going way up. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? My, my, everyone in Toronto is complaining about the cost of rising living because we're adding uh, a quarter million new residents a year to Toronto alone. Yeah, up to that's of course true. Yeah, we're up to over 9 million people. It was, you know, I think 4 million people, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. We're at the point where in Toronto, more than 50% of the population is foreign born. Um, I was in Toronto and people are like, people are like, wow, you're actually from Toronto? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, they're like, we don't meet many people like that. You know what I mean? Well, Toronto is a, in that sense, is a very international city. There's no question about it. Um, you know, for many reasons, including it's just basically the gateway to Canada. But yeah, I mean, there's a there's a housing. I don't know if I use the word crisis, but there's a housing issue here for sure as well. Um, what about the uh, the whole uh, teaching English market? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't know if this is still true, but you know. 15, 20 years ago, uh, there were all kinds of people who, you know, would get these teaching English certificates, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, go and sort of travel the world teaching English. Is that still a thing? Or Yeah, that was definitely one of the biggest things prior to 2020 for making money online. There were sites like, I think it was called VIP Kid, where it was uh, basically like a Chinese company or Chinese students that were, and, and, and people taught English through that. Uh, I think the thing about teaching English is you're, you're pretty limited on the upside in terms of how much money you're going to make because the salaries aren't going to be that high. You know, you might be making 20, 30 bucks an hour and it's enough to live cheap in, in Southeast Asia or Latin America, probably, you know, making, a, you know, a couple thousand bucks a month, but you're not making any serious money, but it can be a big way to get, a good way to get started. Apparently, it's pretty hard to get those jobs and stuff or, or really get it going. Uh, like, it takes a while to get going. But I, I've definitely met people who have done that before. But I think that that's um, taking a bit of a backseat now that it's so much easier to make money online in other ways. Well, that, that's actually my impression, too. Um, I think a lot of the appeal of that was sort of, there used to be a website called Teach and Travel, I think, Doc. I don't know if it's still around, mm. but you know, the appeal was sort of, uh, you know, a way to finance travel, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, now I suppose there's kind of a better way to do it, you know, with this sort of remote worker visa. But let's talk about that a little bit. I've noticed a proliferation mm -hmm. since the pandemic of what I think are called remote worker visas, right? Yeah, they're often called digital nomad visas. Um, they're popping up all over the world, not just in Latin America. Um but it's uh, it's definitely a growing thing, and every month or two, you see that there's new entrants, new countries that are issuing digital nomad visas. Spain just started one up, Ecuador started one up, uh, Panama has one, Mexico has one, 
uh, well, country, countries all over. Maybe talk about how they work for, you know, two or three of the, you know, your, your primary market. So how do they work typically? A digital yeah, yeah a countries all over the world have them, even in Asia and stuff. Um, typically how it works is you demonstrate that you have um, an income source and that you're going to be self-sufficient um, and that you have health insurance. And with those two things, um, countries will allow you to come and uh, work remotely from their country uh, for longer than a typical tourist visa because a, a typical tourist visa is you know three to six months um, but they're issuing digital nomad visas for one year for two years and these are often renewable as well uh, another interesting aspect of digital nomad visas to look into is um they can even count as working towards permanent residency or working towards citizenship depends on the country in in some cases you are working towards it in some cases it doesn't count so you're gonna have to check that for the individual country but that can be attractive as well and so many countries in europe have these digital nomad visas malta where i am now they have one as well that well, you could you could actually use it to live in Europe for like years and years because you could get a two year digital nomad visa in Malta and then maybe go get another two year one in Spain and then get another two year one in Italy or Portugal or something. And so it, it actually might be an interesting way to live long term in Europe. You might have to bounce around a little bit, but it's kind of creating a new path to, to live you in Europe. You won't have to pay the big fees for these uh, residents, residents by investment programs. And, and, and that's exactly, exactly. So it's kind of like a new path. Um, obviously, it's not uh, fully like a long term solution, but some of them, the time spent in country can help you work towards a different category of visa. You could potentially use it just to see if this is the country for you and then maybe work towards uh, a, a traditional temporary or permanent residency and um, you know it allows you to live in these countries typically tax-free so you can now, now let's talk about that a little bit okay so i mean obviously they differ but you say live in them tax-free um let's elaborate on that a little bit um you say typically i mean all these all these rules are you know function of their local laws but i'm assuming there are some countries where if you get a digital nomad visa and you know you're staying there more than six months of the year, you will become a tax resident. Is that correct? That's definitely one of the main things people should be looking at when they're evaluating a particular digital nomad visa. It's just making sure that there's no way of like tripping tax residency while on this visa, because that would not be ideal for most people. I think some of the countries have like a simplified regime type of thing where you know you might pay like a lower rate than a normal tax resident maybe they say okay flat 20 percent rate something like that so they um, you pay something but it's simple and predictable yeah i would say the majority uh the majority allow you to live tax-free but you got to be careful because some of them uh might might involve uh like a small tax thing so it, it can kind of differ program to program now, I think we, we talked last time about the, you know, the interesting uh, interplay between the U.S. for U.S. citizens and residents, the foreign earned income exclusion. Yep. Uh, and these digital nomad visas. And I think what we, we pinpointed was or focused on was that, uh, you know, if, if uh, there's a remote work visa in a country that's going to exempt you from taxation, I mean, you can effectively live tax-free up to about what 112,000 US dollars, right? Yeah, pretty much. I think digital nomad visas are one way of accomplishing that. And then the other way of accomplishing that is living in a zero income tax or a territorial tax country. Uh, so circling back to Latin America, one of the great things about Latin America um, is that probably about half of the countries are territorial tax systems, meaning that they only tax local source income or income earned or repatriated into the country. Um, and so you can think about Panama, Costa Rica, most of Central America, Belize, et cetera, Ecuador, Paraguay, Uruguay, Bolivia, uh, all these countries have 
some form of a territorial tax system where you can essentially live there year round for the rest of your life and pay no tax as long as you're earning your money outside of those countries. Yeah, well, that's very, very interesting. So, you know, another huge advantage, right, that the digital nomad type would have over the local resident, you know, sort of. Yeah, or just earn your money outside the country, because even a local could do this, right? Let's just say you, you were born in Panama or you're born in XYZ territorial tax country. That person doesn't have to be a digital nomad. They don't have to be an expat or whatever. They're they're that's they're just born into that system of the country, and they just need to make sure that they're earning their money outside of yeah. that country, right? So they're going to want to be sending their money to Dubai or the U.S. or whatever it is. And so, like locals in these countries, um, usually have all the same uh, benefits in terms of a territorial tax system that a digital nomad would. So. Don't think that it's just, you know, digital nomads or expats taking advantage of this. No, no, I don't think it's just them, but I think that they come sort of pre-programmed with that. that. I I think it's just that we're more savvy in terms of uh, working online because, you know, we kind of invented the Internet, et cetera, after all. But they're going to be getting more savvy about this as well. Uh, And so, yeah, locals in those countries can take advantage of it, too. Very, very interesting. Um, well, do you want to describe, say, uh, I don't know, just maybe two, two remote worker visas? How do they work? How do you get them practically? Yeah, sure. Um, kind of mentioned it before. Um, but yeah, you, you want to show uh, that you have income. It might need to be a passive source or ideally it can be an active source such as a remote job. You might have to get a letter from the company saying, you know, this person will be continuing to earn, you know, when they leave their country of origin or just some sort of letter that like fits a little bit of the requirements. Uh, It can be pretty loose, though. They often don't even really like check up on it too much. And then uh, healthcare, So you get sort of like an international healthcare plan. uh, And and, and those are actually pretty easy to come by. There's companies like Insured Nomads. Uh, who we had the CEO on on the My Latin Life podcast. There's Safety Wing, uh, and there's more and more of these sort of international healthcare uh, things popping up, and and they're pretty reasonable, like less than hundred bucks a month. And then you would just have a little bit of paperwork saying, yes, this healthcare plan will cover this person in Mexico or wherever you're going to be doing the digital nomad visa. And so, yeah, between the healthcare and the income, uh, you should be good to go. You're able to get uh, medical insurance for less than a hundred dollars a month. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that that is, seems to me to be a great deal, regardless of age. I mean, I'm sure it definitely will will differ a little bit upon your age, just like any uh, healthcare. You're, would. you're talking like you're. We're talking about a sort of twenty five to thirty five digital nomad group. That group can get it for like a hundred bucks a month or less. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Uh, that's, that's amazing stuff. All right, so so that's the uh, the digital. Oh, and hey, I, I just before we switch topics, one cool uh, hack that uh, we we could share with people is that if you are a digital nomad, um, and it, it, it's it's actually an interesting hack because you can get these international healthcare plans, and it'll actually work in the US and Canada too. And so you could potentially forego having healthcare in Canada, the US. And what these international healthcare things will say is that you are covered for um, uh, visits of up to like three weeks or 30 days in the US per year. And some of them I've even seen have um, uh, conditions where they'll even like uh, repatriate you to the US if you need to for more uh, elaborate surgeries or something that can't be accomplished where you are. And they'll pay for that evac, basically. And it's pretty cool. So if you are the type of person that's doing the FEIE, meaning that you're going to be spending less than 30 days a year in the U.S. anyway to to get that tax benefit, then you're also going to be covered for health insurance when you go back to the States on this international health plan. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that really is. Okay, so 
that's the group who the you know we started talking about the younger group the remote worker types let's let's shift gears over to the uh the people considering retirement um now i'm guessing by definition if they're considering retirement they're probably not going to be going there on the remote worker type of visa what advice would you give to somebody you know say approaching 60 or something I can't work anymore, blah, blah, blah. I think I'll go to Mexico. How would you do that? Yes. So one of the unique things about Latin American residency programs is basically every country in Latin America has what's called a pensionado scheme or a pensioner scheme, where if you have a consistent passive source of income, this could be an army pension, it could be a government social security pension, or it could even be uh, like a certificate of deposit uh, that's, you know, in excess of a certain amount. For some countries, it's as low as a thousand bucks. For some of them, it might be twenty five hundred bucks a month. And you have that passive source of income. Let's just call it a pension. Then you can go down to Latin America and get residency in pretty much any country in Latin America using that pension income because you have independent means. You're going to be able to pay for all of your expenses that are there. So uh, that's that's like an ideal situation and and very easy to accomplish. That, that's that's amazing. I mean, those seem like you know like low amounts. Like, well, they are low amounts. So I mean, this they are low amounts. They're they're all they're all. I think every country in Latin America, it's less than three thousand bucks that you need to demonstrate. And so, if you're a husband and wife that ha- you both have pensions, maybe you have a bit of a private pension, a public pension, an army pension, whatever, it's probably always going to be enough to qualify. And let's just say you don't qualify and maybe your top pick, you're definitely going to qualify somewhere else because every country has uh, a slightly different number. But every country in Latin America has a pensionado program. Okay, now do these now these uh, give you what the right to live there? Presumably, not the right to work there. Not that it matters if people are retiring. Is that correct? Just sort of the right to live there, be there. I think it. I think that will depend a bit on the country, but some of them definitely do include the right to work. I think. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to say the wrong example, but uh, some of them definitely do include the right to work. They'll include the right to start businesses um be be a uh, executive of a business open bank accounts uh tons of stuff and some of them also have there's a lot of benefits but one of them is that a lot of these countries they allow you a one-time uh what's it called like a one-time tax benefit where you can import all your stuff into the country without paying import duties so you can ship down a container with sometimes they allow even you can bring your car without any import duties. You can bring your furniture, your TVs if you want, your whatever it is, your Monet paintings, and you don't pay any, pay any import duties as like a one-time thing. Or often like in in the first year after you've been giving given residence, so you can bring all your stuff down and not pay duties. So that's pretty cool. Interesting. Um... I mean, does it make sense to does it make sense to bring your car in that? I mean, are these if there's no duties, it makes sense. But if there are duties on the car, don't do it because it's not going to be worth it. So some, some of them what they to buy there. Let's say Mexico is it more expensive to buy a car in Mexico? Um, it's going to be slightly more expensive, but uh, if you don't have a like a tax free duty uh, incentive, uh, you don't want to bring your car down if you have to pay tariffs on it, because that'll just make it more expensive than buying a car locally. Um, so yeah, buying, buying a car locally is usually the way to go. Okay. Now I've always had the impression that there are, you know, clearly defined expat communities in Mexico and places like this. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. I'd say pretty much any city is going to have Facebook groups. That's going to be, you know, Canadian expats in Mexico, things like that. So they have that for every country and it's pretty easy to find a community. There's definitely um, retiree hotspots. Um, and so you can kind of check out what those are. It might be Cuenca in Ecuador. It might be Boquete in Panama, um, things like that. So most countries in every country in Latin America has little retiree hubs. 
What about taxation? Say Mexican taxation, how's that going to work? I think they typically say on the pensionado visas that you can bring that or you're supposed to actually bring that pension income into the country and you're not going to have to pay taxes on that. Wow, that's quite the deal. Again, the same sort of thing. In other words, you know, get your income from U.S. or Canada and live in a lower cost place. Yeah, with better weather, weather, better food, you'll be able to afford a bigger house. You can have full-time care. Let's say someone in your house is like bedridden or or this or that, or they need full-time care. Maybe they have uh, different health complications uh, and any number of things, right? You could get a full-time live-in care for much cheaper. I'll give you an example. I have a buddy in Toronto and his, uh, his father's getting elderly and has these sort of, not like anger spasms, but he has these sort of weird spasms in the night and stuff like that. And the the point is, is that he needs to get full-time on-site staff. He basically needs like a full-time nurse in Toronto. And that was going to cost him something on the order of like $8,000 a month to have someone full-time, like a full-time staff person take care of his father. And so it was just completely unaffordable to do yeah. so in Canada. And so in order for him to have the full-time staff, he was looking into Jamaica, he's looking into Mexico, different places in Latin America. And the point is that you can have all these different full-time staff, both healthcare and also things like you could have a full-time chef, a full-time maid or nanny. And these things are going to be extremely cheap, like stunningly cheap. Let's say you want a full-time maid slash chef. That's going to cost you maybe, depending on, on which country, I would say somewhere between 500 to seven, 800 bucks a month, uh, us to have a full-time maid bring you your coffee in the morning. They get to cleaning all that type of stuff. Um, and so it's, it's just extremely economical and it allows you to basically live like a King or live a life that you'd be unable to afford back in the States In the States, you'd be lucky to have a cleaner come once a week. And in Latin America, the cleaner comes every single day. Oh my God. So why why doesn't everybody do this? I mean, they just don't know about it or well, that's why we're growing in popularity so much. I would have to think so. I would have to think so. I mean, you know, leaving aside the the weather issues and that, I mean, I think the the cost of living in Canada is is just prohibitive, you know, for a lot of people. And you know. Obviously, the United States, UK as well, etc. This is fascinating stuff. And we've talked about, uh, but let's say, let's compare, say, Mexico to Ecuador, you know, maybe uh, a third country down there. I mean, what are your favorite countries and how would you compare them? Yeah, I think uh, the favorites, the favorite is definitely Mexico for most people. I think just due to proximity. Uh, cultural similarity as well, just the fact that it's a pretty doable drive. So lots of Canadians will drive down to Mexico in the winter. For Americans, it's even easier. They just drive down, they bring their own car. And if your car is kind of still ready, like you can you can bring down your car for like six months at a time. It's no big deal. Um, so Mexico is definitely the favorite in a lot of ways. Central America is great too. Uh, you get into South America and it's a little bit further away. So it's kind of a bit more of a commitment. Uh, but Colombia is super, super popular for younger people. Um, Argentina is popular for younger people. Uh, Brazil is super underrated. Every country has something to offer because there, there's uh, every country offers good food, low cost of living uh, and, and all the rest of it. Well, I, I would have to think that this is just going to, you know, grow exponentially in popularity. Now, you know, so we're talking about from a North American perspective. Uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that uh, Central America, Mexico, what have you, would be very, very popular. What about from a European perspective? How 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 would a European see the uh, you know see the mechanism to get lower cost living? Yeah, I think we're seeing that uh, for Europeans, South America is actually closer in a lot of ways than, say, Central America or Mexico. Like if you're in Europe, there's not too, too many direct flights to 
Central America or, or to Mexico, but there's a lot of direct flights to Brazil. There's a lot of direct flights to Argentina, to Colombia. And so you, you actually see a proportionally higher number of Europeans in, in South America than you might see in Central America or in Mexico. So, you know, German people love Brazil, for example, Portuguese people, obviously. So uh, you do see a little bit of a different makeup in terms of which digital nomads or which expats uh, are, are more likely in Central America versus South America. But certainly, the, you know, one uh, one impact of this recent pandemic is it certainly opened people's eyes to, you know, the uh, these opportunities. And, you know, in other words, they're sort of dislodged from thinking that, you know, 20 years from now, I'm going to be sitting at the same desk in, uh, you know, Toronto or New York or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's, it's good to live a life of adventure. Um, I think Latin America makes sense both in terms of like adventure for a couple of years, but also just as a good long-term base as well uh, for, for all the reasons that we've mentioned. Um, so I think it makes sense. I think, um, I think every region of the world has their sort of greener pasture place. So I think for North Americans, Latin America makes the most sense. For Europeans, maybe it's Portugal or Malta or Cyprus that makes the most sense. Uh, for people in Australia, maybe Southeast Asia makes the most sense just because in terms of proximity and time zone and maybe having family visit you or the ability to get back if need be every couple of months. And so I think um, there's these sort of spheres of influence around the world in terms of regions that have uh, connections between them. Uh, and for North America, uh, Latin America makes the most sense. Another uh, thing I, ha I had recently, uh, I had it put to me this way, this, this is going to sound a little bit bad, but for Europeans, everywhere else you go from Europe, like kind of sucks, like Africa kind of sucks, Middle East kind of sucks, you know what I mean? Central Asia kind of sucks. So Europeans kind of have nowhere to go. Um, and then Australia is like an island. Uh, and so in North America, we kind of have it better than anyone where our low cost region or our tax free region that we have near us, which is Latin America, doesn't suck. It's actually great. Like the 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 lifestyle and everything in a lot of ways is better than North North America. So we're we're very privileged in terms of our strategic location. You're making it sound like the best thing about North America is it's easy to not be in North America. That's what you want to do. You want to earn in North America and then spend pesos. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Now, what about the language thing? Um, you know, I see on your site that you've got information in Spanish and that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, how, how difficult is it to learn Spanish? How long does it take? How would you go about it? It's, it's definitely doable. I mean, uh, it, it all depends on your commitment level and the number of hours that you can put in. But you got to remember, like everyone kind of grew up being obsessed with the U.S. and watching Baywatch and the Terminator and, and, and everything else. So most people are very familiar with American culture and they they know tons of words. They, they can usually speak pretty well. You can go to any country in Latin America, even the crappiest one like Honduras or something, and you're still going to be able to meet English speakers, wherever you go, either they have cousins in the U.S. or they lived there for a couple of years and came back. Um, there's definitely a lot of cultural flow between the countries. So you'll basically be fine only speaking English wherever you go, whether it's Mexico or Argentina. So I'd say learning the language will obviously um, enrich your experience a lot, but I don't think it's 100 percent necessary either. Well, that's interesting. So English is the only language in the world that you can generally survive in. Yeah. You know, without without speaking another language. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it also kind of goes back to you're not going to be earning money in the local economy anyway. You're basically just spending. So all your interactions are, are for the most part, just kind of restaurants or or dealing with the maid or, or smaller things, maybe dealing with the landlord. Um and you can get agents like you can hire like a bilingual lawyer and uh, or, or someone that can sort of act on your behalf, a power of attorney. And that's always going to be that's going to be a reasonable cost, too, because the cost of a lawyer in Latin America is probably one tenth of what it costs in Canada or the U.S. 
So you'll 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 be able to have people do all all the stuff that you need on your behalf anyway. Interesting. All right. So, you know, what is the, you know, you've got great sort of educational initiatives here, your website, your podcast, all that. What's the service you're offering though? I mean, what, what do you, what do people pay you to do for them? I think we're a good veteran evaluator. And I think we just say like it is and, and talk straight. And so people know that we're not like beholden to any one interest. And when we give a recommendation, it's because we've tried it or, we, we, we feel confident about it. And so we uh, refer people to lawyers uh, and accountants, et cetera, all over Latin America. We help people evaluate what are the best programs for them. They say, hey, here's my situation. What countries am I even eligible to get into? And I say, hmm, I think based on your situation, maybe you have passive income, maybe you have this, maybe you have that. Um, we think that, you know, this list of three to five countries would work for you. Okay, which ones do you want to pursue? A lot of people are pursuing more than one. Uh, so we're seeing a big rise of people going for not just one residency permit in Latin America, but actually kind of collecting them and getting two or three or four. I, I have a handful personally. So um, so we're seeing a lot of that, like people getting trying to go for multiple second passports, multiple residencies, multiple driver's licenses. And we kind of help people stack them and, and teach people how to do that. So we just make things easy and then point people in the right direction. So, so you're, you're a combination sort of educator, consultant, and, and tour guide, if you will. Yeah, you can say that. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, you know, important thing and, you know, allows people to sort of cut, you know, cut through all the clutter and possible misinformation online. Do you find there's a lot of misinformation online? I think so. I think a lot of the requirements are out of date uh, that you might see online. And just the thing about Latin America is how things are on paper is not necessarily how things are on the ground, because depending on who you're working with, uh, whether it be lawyers or different service providers, sometimes they can push things through that might not otherwise be the case. So let's just say an example. Let's just say let's just say you need $2,500 of passive income on paper. That's the rule to get a residency visa in Mexico. I'm not sure that's the number. We're just making it up. So let's just say on paper, it's supposed to be 2,500, but your income is actually only 2,400. And so you might be coming from this Canadian, American, European perspective and saying, oh, woe be me. I can't even get into this program. I'm not qualified. I guess I got to move on to something else. But here's the thing is, if you have the right lawyer, they can, they have the relationships with immigration, uh, they can sort of argue on your behalf, and they can get you that residency permit issued, even though you're slightly off the official requirements, because things are a lot more negotiable in Latin America. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, you know, this is a world that is really, really opened up and you know, I think a very short period of time, you know, last, what, five, six years? Is is that correct? Yeah, because just you've seen an exponential rise in the number of people that are making money online, which is really the the important crux here, is you really have to be able to make money online for this to work. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you've seen easily 10x the number of remote workers in the past couple of years. And so naturally, 10x the number of people that um, are, are, are looking at, that have a greater set of opportunities. And I think what, what, and this is huge in a lot of ways, but it, it's really changing. Hopefully I can communicate this well, but it's really changing our entire relationship with the nation state and with governments, because we used to be so reliant on government or our cities for the jobs that we were sort of not in a position of power or negotiation. But now that we're making money online, and we're making money that has nothing to do with the city. We're nothing to do with the country we're in. It's like, why am I even giving 50% to this country with pothole roads? And I'm really getting nothing out of it. And we're really moving to a place where the individual or the entrepreneur is actually the one with the greater negotiating position. And they can just pick up and leave at any time. And we're, we're getting into a situation where governments are actually competing for our business. And they're saying, hey, 
if you come here, we want you to be spending money in our country, blah, blah, blah. We'll give you X, Y, Z incentive. Um, so people are competing now. And so that's why Dubai is growing so much is because they're competitive. And so people are saying, I'm leaving the UK. I'm going to Dubai because it's just a more competitive system. It's just, you know, the, the incentives are there. They want me there. And so uh, we're, we're at a place where governments and cities are actually going to have to start competing for the business of increasingly mobile people who can get up and leave if they're being treated poorly. You know, this is exactly, uh, you know, in 1996, uh, James Dale Davidson wrote a book called The Sovereign Individual. Yes. Have you read it? It sounds like you know it. I'm aware of it, yes. Yeah. Well, it's it's an amazing book. I mean, certainly one of the most prescient books that I've, that I've read. But, you know, he talks about this in precisely the same language about how you know, people becoming customers, uh, you know, instead of citizens, uh, this sort of stuff. Yep. And he also said, and this is in 1996, uh, he also said that U.S. citizenship was likely to be the worst possible citizenship of the 21st century uh, because of the citizenship taxation thing. And he was talking about stuff in this book that, you know, even high-end lawyers and tax accountants were not aware of at that time. Uh, but I mean, he turned out to be uh, absolutely correct. I mean, it's as though what you're what you're the way you're describing is exactly the way the book was written. So I mean, I think that's definitely true. And then we add to that the whole issue of digital currency and that, right? Yep. Yeah, it's it's kind of the perfect storm right now of of all these different things between quick crypto, working online, uh, being able to you know increasing. Uh, Kind of, kind of tyranny or overtaxation in the West, the West in decline, big deficits, um, declining quality of, of healthcare, rising costs. And, uh, and so it's just a perfect storm. And it's going increasingly mainstream. I have people who know me in real life that don't even know that I run my Latin life because I don't publicize it in my, um, like let's just say in my personal Instagram stuff. And I have normal people who are coming up to me and saying, hey, I just got Dubai residency. Now I'm working on Portugal residency, blah, blah, blah. And they don't even know I'm the, I'm the My Latin Life guy. And so this thing is going way, way, way more mainstream. And um, the point is, is that people need to start taking action now. And they need to start getting residencies now because the requirements are going to go up. Because I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. Yeah, we're seeing that it's getting harder every year. Some programs are going away, they're changing, and whenever they change, it gets harder to do. You know, what used to be a 30,000 investment, now it's a 100,000 investment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, what used to be three pieces of paper, now it's 10 pieces of paper. And so it's just getting way more difficult. And so that's one of the big things we talk about is actually just stacking residencies. And that's why we don't fully focus on just one country and we talk about the whole region is because it's an ever-changing landscape. Um, and we want people to be super sovereign, have bank accounts in multiple countries, multiple driver's license, uh, multiple passports, all that good stuff. And what do you think the future is of North America? Um, I'm not as bearish as a lot of people are. Um, I, I'm not one of those like tyranny guys. Um, I think uh, Canada will, will actually do pretty well. I think the U.S. will, will do like reasonably well. But um, it's not that... But I, I think what's happening is there's sort of like a leveling of the playing field or a regression to the mean where Canada and the U.S. was just so much better than the rest of the world for a number of decades. But now all the other countries are kind of catching up because, you know, they have big screen TVs and, and uh, Tesla's now everywhere else, too. And so and, and iPhones. And so uh, things are just kind of more or less the same in every country now. Like it used to be so obvious that the U.S. was the best country in the world. And now really it's just another country among my, many and uh, the least, and, and in a lot of ways, like the one with the least uh, culture or, you know, you can't even walk around most of Canada or the U.S. You need a car to go everywhere. And so people hate that as well. So it's always That's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah. So it's always little things. Um, but yeah, I think it's just... Uh, Kind of a regression to the mean, but I, I think they'll actually do well, partly due to geography and well, they and just having, won't have uh, the same. They just won't have the same competitive advantage. Yeah, 
I mean, I think that, that Canada, uh, you know, is blessed with a lot of space and a lot of resources that's likely to make an attractive immigration destination down the road. You know, if they can get their, uh, you know, their their tax, the high, you know, high cost of taxation sorted out and that. But, yeah, I like, I don't think Canada and the U.S. are bad places. I think it's, it's no, great I don't to go visit. Maybe I'll even live there uh, at some point in the future. So it's not that I don't think. It's not that I think they're bad and we have to all escape immediately, but more just from a, a completely objective, logical perspective, it makes sense to have a plan B. It makes sense to have backup plans. It makes sense to have at least a diversified portfolio, have a little bit of your money uh, outside the country, have a little bit of not be 100% reliant on one jurisdiction, uh, things like that. So just from a completely objective perspective, a lot of I'm not even saying go live your entire life in Latin America. Maybe it might be spend your winters there. Maybe it might be don't even live there yet, but just get a residency permit as a plan B. And a lot of them have very low physical presence requirements to maintain. So you might be saying, you know, I'm in Canada. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm kind of I'm kind of stuck in here, but it, it's kind of going well for me now. The kids are in school. I'm making a million bucks a year as a high profile lawyer. That's cool. Keep doing that. Keep earning. But get your plan B set up now and just get that residency permit in Mexico or Panama or whatever it is. And you don't really have to spend any time there per year to maintain it and just keep it active and just have uh, have a little something going on just uh, just in case. And you'll, you'll find it actually can be can be quite useful. The other thing is that if you're like fully middle class, you know, I, I had a tweet that that did really well where I said, um, in Latin America, you don't want to be poor and you don't want to be super rich. But in Canada, you don't want to you you want to be poor or super or you want to be poor, but you don't want to be middle class. I'm saying I'm not saying it as eloquently as I did in the tweet, right? But it's like <laughs> it's like it's great to be poor in North America because you get all these benefits. Yeah, that's right. The middle the middle class. But the middle class is the one paying for all of it. And so if you're like, if you're like very solidly middle class, but you're not really, if you're a billionaire track, you know, stay in San Francisco, keep working on that billion. That's cool. That's fine. Um, But if you're just a normal, like middle class, middle management guy, you're the sales manager, you're the whatever, and you're just living a middle class existence, it kind of, it's not like the middle class is the one that's really paying all the taxes. They don't really have a good lifestyle. And those are the people that are going to immediately benefit the most from going to Latin America. Because think about it. Like you might be thinking you're living like this first world existence as a middle-class person in Canada, the U S but you're cooking your own food. You're getting your own groceries. You're driving your own car. You're, you're, you're doing all these like very low value tasks where if you're in Latin America, you don't have to cook your own food. You don't have to drive your own car. You don't have to do your own laundry. You know what I mean? You you have people that can do all this stuff for you and you can outsource all these tasks. And so you can live like a king in Latin America and you, you're actually going to have a, a, a much um, much higher quality of life on most metrics. You know, I think of that as a perfect description. And I think that therefore is probably a perfect moment uh, to end our discussion today uh, on that note, uh, I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, if this discussion here hasn't interested people in creating additional options, I suspect that nothing really would. So how would people uh, interact with your program? What are the coordinates? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, Twitter, at MyLatinLife, website, MyLatinLife.com. Uh, the podcast is available on all platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, your your favorite podcast player. So go check it out. Check it out. Uh, John here was uh, episode number 80. So you can check his episode out as well as tons of other interviews with uh, investors, adventurers, digital nomads, expats all over Latin America. A lot of really interesting people and cool stories. So that'll give you a good vibe. But of all things, we're, we're most active on Twitter. Uh, so you guys can uh, send us a DM there and just kind of check out all the conversations going on.
I mean, it's amazing. You know, in addition to all this, right? You know, your your business is largely built on built on you know on the internet, right? Itself, you know, Twitter and all that. It's amazing stuff. All right. Well, we definitely should pick this up again at some point. Uh, but for the moment, uh, I have been speaking with Vance, who is the brains behind MyLatinLife.com, Twitter, MyLatinLife. And yeah, he's got like uh, 80-something podcasts up there that provide tremendous educational value. So I would suggest going there. And on that note, any final words of wisdom, encouragement, education that you'd like um, to? Yeah, let's let's do this more often. Um, I, I uh, you know, just thanks again for having me on. It, it, it's always great to speak with you. I always learn a lot from your perspective as well. I think uh, the whole issue of Americans abroad is one where we're never going to be able to fully buckle the buckle on it. There's always something new to discuss, right? Uh, so having no, to, no end of aspects of that problem. <laughs> it's a never-ending problem. But yeah, I mean, uh, thanks again for having me. Hopefully you can uh, link up everything in the show notes in terms of the, the website and the Twitter and everything. And uh, we're pretty active. So if you guys send us a message, we'll be able to respond and, and start dialogue so thanks again for the the, uh, the time that's great wonderful discussion and once again i'm speaking with vance of my latin life.com fame